going to go through, uh, we're now at Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is kind of a continuation of last week's passage uh, where it was talking about worship, but whereas last week it focused in on uh, the priests and the congregation, this week it's going to focus in a little more on the priesthood itself and the leadership of the church. So uh, if you are able, would you please stand uh, as for the reading of God's word? This is from Malachi chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to, give, take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was, on, was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. And you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you promise us that your, uh, the wounds that you inflict are faithful, and the wounds that you inflict, you bind up. The bones that you break, you bind out of, uh, so that we might be even stronger than before, Lord. You are a God of truth, and you are a God uh, who is rightly to be worshipped and praised, uh, not just with our mouths, but with our whole being. And when we stray from that, Lord, when we fall away from that, you are uh, faithful in speaking truth to us, Lord. So I pray you would help us to recognize if there's anything in this passage that speaks to us, that we might see the blind spots that we have or see how we might put more faith in the things of the world than we do in you. And I pray even more, Lord, that you would help to reset our minds on the beauty, uh, goodness, and truth of Jesus Christ our high priest and our savior so that knowing and being immersed in what he has done for us what he has saved us from and what he has saved us for and to that that reality would be so great in our minds uh, that we would naturally praise you and that we would live a life of gratitude and service to the honor and glory of your name so, Lord, be with us. Let your spirit illuminate our minds. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please, please be seated. 
maybe you know this, maybe you don't, most top athletes make probably more of their money or most of their money from brand endorsements than they do from their winnings or from their salaries. They get uh, different brands, major brands like Nike or Adidas will look for athletes that model their corporate values to serve as representatives for them to the culture, uh, to people, and then the athlete, athletes get all kind of benefits in return for that, usually big money, right? Uh, well, sometimes those relationships go south. For example, Lance Armstrong was, was like the name in, road, in, in bicycle racing and road cycling. He won seven Tour de France's in a row. He was arguably one of the most famous and admired uh, athletes in all of history. He, just, he was a cancer survivor. Uh, he had uh, all kinds of brand endorsements. And then in a single day, a single day, he lost 11 corporate sponsorships worth $150 million a year when it came out that he had cheated to win those races. And he went from being one of the most admired men in, in athletics to being, uh, now with a, you know, when they say Aunt Lance Armstrong, they usually put disgraced in, in parentheses in front of his name. And the same things happened over and over again. Tiger Woods, Mike Tyson, Michael Vick, Maria Sharapova, the list goes on and on in athletes who became so tarnished in the public eye that they went from being an asset to a liability to their sponsors, and overnight, they literally went from the high temples of competitive sports to the trash heaps of history. Uh, one of the more shocking realities that we see, if you pay really close attention to the Bible, uh, is that we come face to face with the fact that God, on an even larger scale, is completely willing to do the same thing for his representatives on earth. There comes a time when his representatives become so corrupt, they tarnish his name so badly that he not only cancels their contracts, but he wipes them off the face of the earth. Case in point, the temple complex at Shiloh. Uh, in 1050 BC, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that, that, that God had given to Moses, a 400-year-old uh, Israeli institution, was set up in Shiloh. In fact, it was become so permanent, they stopped calling it the tabernacle, and 1 Samuel 4 calls it the temple, uh, until the priesthood of Eli became so corrupt that God's God sent the Philistine army in to level it and wipe it off the face of the earth, right? In 1 Samuel 4, it's kind of dealt with euphemistically. The wife of the high priest gives birth after the fall of Israel's army, and she says, she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has left Israel. If you were an Israelite at that time, back in those days, you wouldn't know what that meant. It meant the Philistines were coming. They didn't just stop at the army. They didn't just stop at the battlefield victory. They were coming to Shiloh, uh, and the archaeological record backs that up. And in fact, Psalm 78 gives the graphic description of the siege of Shiloh and the Philistine army wiping it off the face of the earth. Uh, and the tabernacle and the priesthood of the tabernacle never really recovered. It was a, almost a hundred years before God reestablished worship at the temple with the dedication of the temple of Solomon. 
Imagine, no church since 1921. Everything in just total disarray. And of course, after that happened, they learned their lesson, right? <laughs> no, they did not. In 957 BC, the temple is dedicated in Jerusalem. And again, 370 years, about 400 years later, about the same amount of time, the priesthood and the worship life of Israel had again become so corrupt and so tarnished. It so tarnished God's name in the world that God sent the Babylonians to come and wipe it off the face of the earth. And of course, after that, they learned their lesson, right? <laughs> well, here we are again in this passage. This is God starting the ramp up again. Here we are again about 100 years since that last event. Israel's back in the land and God is already warning them that if they don't repent, he's going to remove the Aaronic priesthood permanently. But that's not the main point. The main point of this passage that we're going to get to and the good news of this passage is that God, yes, has promised that he is going to annihilate and remove the Aaronic priesthood, but that's because he has always had something better in mind. He's always had a better priesthood in mind, and Malachi is going to tell us about that, and that's where our hope is. And so the bad news of this passage is that God has no problem removing his witness, his people, as a witness from the world when that witness becomes so corrupted that it does more harm than good. But the good news is that God has a solution even for our corrupted worship. And so we're going to look at two, big, two things, two big lessons. The first big lesson is this. When we only preach what people want to hear, the church dies. First lesson. When we only preach what people want to hear, the church dies. Let's listen. Listen to this first part again. And now, O oh priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. That sounds kind of harsh, huh? <laughs> wow. Wow, God. Really? <laughs> we hear that. What do we hear? We hear, I hear public humiliation. God saying, I'm going to publicly humiliate you. I mean, what could be worse than that, Right? Uh, and that's part of it for sure, but actually it's a lot worse than that. He, what he's, this is what he's talking about. In Leviticus 4, uh, and especially Exodus chapter 29, it lays out how to go about the offering of bulls for the consecration of the priests themselves, and also for the sin offering. And what they would do is they would slaughter the bull, the priest would put, take some of the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, they'd take the rest of the blood, pour it out of the base of the altar, and then they would take the fat surrounding the intestines, they would take the liver, the long lobe of the liver and the fat around it, and the kidneys and the fat around it, and they would put that on the altar to burn as the sacrifice, to burn as the, as the sacrifice, and, but the rest of the bull, the skin, the hide, the flesh, the entrails, and the contents thereof, they took all of that 
outside the city and burned it as unclean. And so what he's saying, what he's saying is, by saying he's going to spread dung on their faces, he's saying, I will make you ceremonial and clean so that you will have, you will be unable to continue in your ministry. You will be unable to be my representative. You'll be unable to pronounce blessing upon the people. You will be unable to accept their sacrifice in my behalf. You will be unable to be in close proximity to me as my servants and to enjoy all those blessings because you'll be ceremonially unclean and you will be, you will be taken with all of that offal outside the city gates and burned there. It's kind of like the Old Testament version of what happens to salt when it loses its saltiness. It's, worth, it's not worth anything but to be thrown out into the streets and be trampled underfoot. Kind of the same idea. Uh, so what did they do? Here's the big question, right? What did they do that was so bad that God would say that to them? If you don't stop doing this, this is what's going to happen to you. What were they doing? Uh, and to boil it down from the passage, uh, he, Malachi boils it down in really the last vor, verse by calling it partiality in their teaching. What does that mean? One commentator really kind of, kind of summed it up, I think expressed it well, when he said that partiality in their teaching meant that they would change manipulate or cherry pick what they would teach from God's word depending upon the prevailing moods and attitudes of the culture they were in. So for example, in this time, in this place, what happened? People had lost interest in worship, right? People had lost interest in worship to the point that they weren't willing to give their, their finest animals the way the law had required them to do. But the priests... They relied on those animals to eat, to live. That was their pay, right? So what do you do? People have lost worship. They won't bring animals, but you need those animals. You need that tithe to survive. What do they say? Bring the blemished animals. We'll take them. It's all good. And in doing so, what did they do? They, they encouraged God's people to dishonor God. They encouraged God's people to... Uh, to be half-hearted and self-consumed and to put God last. And why did they do it? For selfish reasons. They needed those ties to keep coming in. And that could be, you know, let's, one of the harder parts of biblical interpretation is like taking those principles out of the Old Testament and into the New. We talked about that. So we don't have animal sacrifices anymore, but... You know, we all know this. We could be, let's say, say, your, say your context is uh, like in an urban, urban center with more of a progressive lean. Uh, and people are like really about, you know, achievement or wherever you might be in the world that's like that. But you really need those tithes to survive and you really need to grow that church. Uh, you teach about how Jesus can help you win at life. You teach in parts about the faith that talk about uh, living with one another, but whatever you do, don't talk about uncomfortable topics like sin or repentance or obedience, because that's going to offend people. People are going to leave. You're not going to get the tithes you want. 
fear, right? There's fear behind that. Or, conversely, let's say you are in an established and older, maybe a conservative church, and you need those tithes to survive, or you need those likes, or you need that affirmation, or you need to feel like people are affirming you that you're part of the club. You want to teach a precise, systematic theology, but whatever you do, God forbid, do not talk about the brutal history of racism in the church, or do not talk about God's call for us to serve our neighbors because you might offend people, you're going to cost your tithes, people are going to leave. Fear. Now maybe you're saying, wait a minute, Rob, wait a minute. This is all Old Testament stuff we're talking about, not New Testament. You just made a jump. <laughs> you just made a jump to the New Testament. I did. I did. But you remember when we talked about the Laodicean, uh, and we were going through the book of Revelation, and we were talking about the churches in Revelation, and I had a whole sermon about the Laodicean community megachurch versus the first reformed church of Ephesus. What's, what was unique about those two churches was two things. Number one, they're the only two churches in, that, in all of the churches of Revelation that Jesus says threatens to wipe their witness off the face of the earth. To Ephesus, he says, I'm going to take your lampstand. That's me. I'm going to snuff your light out. I'm going to take your witness away from the world. And to the to the Laodicean community megachurch, he said the same thing. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And what were they doing? Totally different things. The Laodicean community church had compromised with the culture. They had like compromised important things of the faith and salvation. And they, they'd stopped telling people, if you worship the gods of the trade guilds you belong to, uh, that is sin. They were saying it's perfectly okay to do that and worship Jesus. We're all good. And God said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What happened? The prevailing culture was afraid of being out, outcasts or of being called atheists or being shunned by their neighbors. And so they wanted to worship the trade guild gods. They wanted to worship the gods of the city. And But on Sunday, they wanted to worship Jesus uh, they had stopped talking about sin, about repentance, about salvation in the way the gospel did. Jesus says, spit you out of my mouth, remove my witness. But the first reformed church of Ephesus, what did they do? They had their theology down. They were on point. They had, they, they had seen the, 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 the false apostles come. They'd seen the false doctrine that they were teaching. They called them out. No small thing, right? But when it came to love they had become such a battled church that they had turned in upon themselves and become hostile uh, and their outreach became almost zero and their love, the love of Christ that they were supposed to show the community and the people around them was non-existent. And Jesus says, snuff out your witness. So there, there's, I mean, I swear I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> really says all that stuff. What does that say? There's the jump. It's, this is not just Old Testament 
Aaronic priesthood, wipe your witness off. I know there's big differences, right? We're not in a covenant of Levi with God. There's not a covenantal Aaronic priesthood. We have a new covenant. Jesus is our high priest. Nothing can break that. But for individual churches and a lesser scale, at least those principles still hold. It's still possible for our witness to become so tarnished by either of those things that we become a liability. And God has every right to wipe us off the face of the earth or to make us irrelevant. What a terrible mess, right? We survey the church. And we see, I see, partiality that creates these vibrant churches with these vibrant outreaches and a false gospel. And then it creates these church... These churches with a beautiful articulation of the gospel and no outreach. Uh, and so rarely do we see that balance. You know, and so, you know, the scary line, I think the scary line, scary theology 101 in this whole passage is where God says, at the end, I will make you despised and abased before all the people. And, in, and I know the gospel is offensive. We know that, but we should also be thinking about how might we be making the gospel offensive. Maybe the culture sees those giant seeker-sensitive churches, and they just recognize it as like a pale imitation of worldly imitainment, and they see it as a joke. Or maybe they see uh, you know, the ingrown hostility uh, and self-righteousness and arrogance of the precise theologians, and they see it as... Uh, they dismiss it as being cold and self-righteous and hypocritical and nonsense. Maybe part of the reason the culture despises us is because of stuff we do. Maybe not, but it's certainly a question we should be asking ourselves. So what's the solution? What a terrible mess. What could possibly be our only hope in life and death? Well, the second big lesson and what this is all pointing towards is, is this. When we preach Jesus and all his commandments, the church thrives. The first part was when we preach only what people want to hear, the church dies. But when we preach Jesus and all his commands, the church thrives. Me and my kids watch, watch through the whole uh, Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events on TV, right? Maybe you're into that if you have kids. It's about these, these three kids who are orphans and they just can't catch a break, right? Every time, every time they're about to be rescued... Just everything falls apart again, and they go through one unfortunate event after another, after another, after another. And as I was thinking about this particular sermon, it thought to me that that would be a good subtitle for the Old Testament. It could be the Old Testament, a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> because that's what it is, right? I mean, we, like, we know this, right? There's, if you take the Old Testament... And you look at it as like a guide for how to live your life and to look for heroes and to think to yourself, what would Abraham do? 
You will quickly be disappointed and discouraged when you find Abraham, like, swapping out his wife and lying and, uh, and Moses, you know, becoming angry and, uh, you know, having, and Noah having a, a little bit of a drinking problem. And, you know, it's, we had a whole series called Epic Fails of the Patriarchs, kind of point that out. Old Testament is not a record of the great works of the faithful people of the earth, right? It's a record <laughs> a bunch of people like us stumbling, stumbling through their relationship with God, right? I just, I've asked this question a lot. It's a, it's, perfect, it's a perfect illustration. How long did the first covenant last? You know, whenever you ask that question, the theologians start thinking about their timeline that they learned in seminary, and they're like, well, so, 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 okay, I'll let 1400 BC to 586, and you start doing the math. The first covenant lasted about 15 minutes, maybe a day. God gave Moses the tablets. Israelites said, who's Moses? <laughs> we don't know what happened to him. Here are your gods. Here is Yahweh, O Israel, these golden calves. Let's have a big party. And, and the tablets were smashed, right? That was the beginning. And then the rest of the Old Testament is this story of Israel breaking the covenant and of God reinstating the covenant. Israel breaks the covenant, God reinstates the covenant. Over and over and over again. You know, it's, it's like this, it's like they break the covenant, they get wrecked. God saves them, reinstates the covenant. The first thing they do is they like vow that they're going to keep all the law. And they're like, this time we really, 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 really mean it. And then they fail. And what's interesting though is to see that, e that these things of the old covenant, especially the Aaronic priesthood itself, were made. Uh, the Old Testament priesthood was like an American car from the 1970s. It had a planned obsolescence. In the 1970s, there was no, really, no real competition for American cars, and so the American builders started to build the cars on purpose to fail at about 100,000 miles. Why? So you'd be, have to buy a new car, and that was their business model, right? They'd buy the car, and it would hit the road, and all the, like, the, you know, the vibrations and the hardship and scrapes of the road and life as a car would like build up and the car would wear out and break at 100,000 miles. Uh, well, God created this original priesthood that we're talking about with the same idea that God created the Aaronic priesthood with a planned obsolescence. It was planned to fail. It was given an impossible task, atone for the sins of the people. And yet it could never, even, even in, its, in its best moments, even if it did everything that God said it was supposed to do, it still would have failed at its mission. Why? Because that was part of the mission, to show us that in our own strength, doing our own works, we will fail at atoning for our sins over and over and over again. And why does God want us to see that? He wants us to see that so that when he presents plan A, the real solution, the one who can atone for our sins, we would see it with the kind of gratitude and awestruck wonder that it truly deserves. And that's where he points us to in this passage. Listen to verses 5 through 7. 
My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name, true instruction in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the big question is, who is the him? Right? Hopefully, you've been here long enough. You know, but... Uh, some people want to say this is an idealized description of the old, uh, the old temple and the Levitical priesthood in the first temple days. But you, you have to read like five minutes in the Old Testament to see that that's just not, it's not like that. There's nowhere in the history of Israel where the priesthood was like this. That it had those attributes. And not only that, it says him. So who is it? Uh, if you look really close, you can see who it is. At the very end, he says, for he is the messenger of the Lord. You Hebrew scholars can tell me what messenger means in, in, in Hebrew. Messenger is the word for angel. And so this really it's saying he is the angel of the Lord of hosts. That's a title that's given to the Jesus who appears on the earth before the incarnation. It's the angel of the Lord that appeared to Abraham on Mount Moriah and gave him the promises. It's the same angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Horeb, the mountain of God. It's the same angel of the Lord that guided the people of, of Israel out of Egypt and protected them. The ideal priest, the one who God, who Malachi really points our attention to in this passage, is to Jesus who is our perfect high priest. And what does he do in this passage? What is it describing him doing? He's, in, he's working out a covenant, right? It says, he, one party, Jesus, promises and will fear God, will honor God with his whole life, will teach truth, will do no wrong. He will leave a, live a perfect, righteous, and sinless life so that he could then be our sinless sacrifice on the cross, honoring God and obeying God and following the will of the Father even to the point of death and sealing that covenant in his own blood. And what does God promise to do? Promises to give life and give peace, but not just to Jesus, not just to him as our high priest. That's a promise that God makes to give life and peace to everyone, everyone who takes shelter in the name of Jesus. God, all he requires, and this may be a mystifying, if you're new here or you're, you're watching this online and you never heard this before, what God requires of us is not that we have perfect worship. It's not that we master all the rituals in the Bible and like really get them down. It's not that we master this, the words or the incantations and we use like a kind of magic to manipulate him. It's not that we have a list of moral obligations and we have to live up to those 
to a certain percentage in order to be accepted by God. There's some like, you know, there's a cutoff. Maybe it's 80%, maybe it's 70%. Maybe if my good outweighs my bad, God will accept me. That's not what it says at all. It says even one sin destroys your relationship with God and makes you an outcast from him. But what it does say is that Jesus, as our covenant, as our champion, that Jesus, as our champion, did everything that we needed to do to be saved. He was the one who honored the Father. He was the one who lived a perfect life. He gives us credit for that perfect life. He died on the cross to give us our, to, to forgive us our sins. And so the, the, that's the offer. It is, the more I think about it, you know, I've been, pray, I've been praying lately. We've, I've been like trying to focus on having like, you know, a, a, a real like time with Jesus every morning, which is really hard to do, right? The more busy you are, especially after last week's sermon, you know, I can totally convicted all you so that, you know, that, you know, like I'm super convicted on Monday. <laughs> but I've been trying to like set aside time where I just don't do anything, but just I'm in God's presence and I'm just meditating and I'm praying. I'm like, God, take away all the fog that like crowds in around my brain. Take away all the competing things that compete for my attention and my affections and help me like really see, really see what it is you've done for us. And it just, it's just hitting me this week that the, the Christian, the Christian view of salvation is so unlike any other religious idea that's ever been presented. It is so totally different. Every other religious system has something you got to do. You have to fulfill these things. You have to support these rituals. One of my best friends is a Muslim, and we were talking about our different, you know, religions one day out on the patio, smoking a big, fat Cuban cigar. And uh, he said, and I was like, do you keep the five pillars of Islam? Do you, like, pray every day? Do you do these things? And he was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, but, but the Quran says you have to do those things for Allah to accept you. And he was like, yeah. I'm like, doesn't that bother you? <laughs> <laughs> do you ever like think through that he's like no <laughs> I'm like that's real like Muslims have an understanding of the holiness of God in a way that most Christians don't right they get it but they don't have the they don't have grace when they think of, when you think about it he would there there he was confronted with the reality that there were stipulations he must accomplish and he knew he was not accomplishing them and that's the reality for every other religious system every other religious ideal that has ever been introduced into the world i don't care what your moral standards are i don't care if it's the law of moses the five pillars of islam the eightfold path of buddhism i don't care if it's the bylaws of your of your sorority house you're not living up to them you don't even live up to your own standards Think about it. Think about it. We like totally lower the standards for ourselves, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to hit that. No, you don't. Not even close. And so, listen, if that's, what's, if that's what's needed, we are without hope. And so Christianity, it's, it's, 
God has been flooding my mind with this. It is literally the best deal on offer. It's the only deal that we can actually take advantage of. It's the only thing that can possibly work. That God had to personally come and personally live a righteous life, fulfill all the requirements of his law for us, and then he had to take the penalty of our sin upon himself. And then he just offers a simple trade. Your sin for my righteousness. Who, who wouldn't want a deal like that? And when we like get down to those brass tacks and we're like, this is, this is so good. This is so amazing. How could we not want to worship that God? How could we not want to, like, tell everybody in the world about it? Because we're afraid. <laughs> How could we make Christianity about all the silly things we make it about? When, when the best possible thing we could make it about is, is Jesus. Uh, and this, this offer that seems and sounds to be too good to be true, but it is not. It is true. And so, listen, concluding, wrapping it up. God calls his ministers, he calls the church, calls the leadership in the church to preach the truth without partiality. Come what may, even when, especially when it will upset the status quo, it will cost us money, even when you're afraid it will kill the church. Jesus says, keep preaching the truth and trust me in that. The beauty of Jesus is going to come forth in that and the way to live a life that reflects that beauty into the world is going to come out of that and you're going to be okay. <clears throat> if we don't, we risk becoming unbalanced and becoming so corrupt that our witness for God uh, becomes irrelevant. And I, listen, I love the church. I love the church. I want to see the church thriving. I want to see the whole counsel of God being taught. I want to see us holding on to the gospel and holding on to Jesus with everything we have. And I want to see us living lives of beautiful orthodoxy that demonstrates and shows that truth to the culture so that people believe that we believe what we say we believe. And so I'm about this. Wedding beauty and truth together, right? Putting all these elements of balance together in the church and creating one of those rare oases where beauty and truth are brought into harmony together so that we can be witnesses to the world. But we never forget that God has called us to primarily focus on Jesus and what he's done for us, the covenant that he's made for us so that we can rest in that work And so in that rest, we can stop being so afraid and obey Jesus' command, which is his, the thing he says more than anything is, stop being so afraid. Stop being so afraid. And the more we understand what Jesus has done for us, the more secure we are in it, the less uh, we're susceptible to being afraid, the more fear we shed, the more we're freed up to spend what little time we have left here forgetting about ourselves 
and going about the business of caring for our neighbors, the people around us, especially those who are less fortunate than us, giving up our little schemes for winning at life, and focusing on how we might be light and salt in the earth, and doing our good deeds in the front of man so that our Father in heaven might be glorified. And in that, trusting that God will build bridges for us to bring the gospel in meaningful ways so that we would be a bright witness for his name in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Um, we thank you for the hard parts, Lord. We know that you are healing us through them. I pray, Lord, that we would receive your word and that we would see where our, and look hard for where our blind spots are and seek uh, to be balanced as a church so that we might honor and glorify you. Uh, even more so, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus in all of his beauty. And in that beauty, we would find our rest and our peace and our hope. And the more we are filled with those things, Lord, the things of the world, we pray, would just naturally begin to shed from us and we would be free from fear and anxiety and that you would allow us the privilege of being light and salt in the world and seeing a thousand people come to faith in your name. And we pray this in the almighty name of Jesus. Amen.